This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dean Amal Andraus. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm James Briand, second year M Architecture student at Columbia GSAP. I'm speaking today with the founders of the award-winning practice VPPR Architects, Tatiana von Preusen, Catherine Pease, and Jessica Reynolds, on the occasion of their lecture at GSAP in the spring of 2017. The London-based firm formed in 2009 at the height of the global recession to design a cookie shop that sadly never opened. They've since gone on to design and build projects that range from private houses to urban master plans. Welcome Tatiana, Catherine, and Jessica. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. So I wanted to start out by discussing the relationship that your projects have between graphic design and architecture. For example, the vaulted house, there's a very specific relationship between the floor, coverings, and the skylights, and that relationship is also translated in the house's plan. So I was hoping you could discuss how that those two things relate to graphic design and actually built projects. So I think that um, the sites, a lot of the sites that we build on are infill sites. They're not sites that traditionally would have had housing on them. So in a way, it's a discovering a new typology. So it was a kind of a sense of exploring a new kind of architectural language, I suppose. And um, some of the way that we've done that is to bring certain kind of geometries and patterns to the site and allow that to generate the plan and then you kind of down to the detail so that there's a, a kind of consistent, a coherent uh, language that, that goes through all of the scales of the project. And, and that's something that we've been exploring in kind of various different ways. But also, what, whether the geometry itself is it's not just an aesthetic um, decision, but also creates certain kind of unexpected relationships between different programs and different rooms and um, the, you know, their functions. Right. So I'm going to sort of bounce off what you said about infill, and actually that's something that uh, is, is seen in a few of your projects. What are the challenges of designing in a city such as London where actually land is less and less available and it, it can be a challenge to actually find these sites and uh, subsequently develop housing on them? Well, there's so many constraints in London, and um, as land prices are going higher and higher, uh, people are discovering more spaces to build on that they wouldn't previously have thought would have any value. So you know, it's gaps between buildings or leftover spaces in the city or on top of roof roofs, sort of all these, there are all these new types of sites. And um, there's a lot of, as, as people are sort of developing and starting to develop these sites, um, local government are um, introducing more and more um, policies and guidelines in terms of how you can develop them. So there's um, over... Overlooking and privacy is a major issue because often you're in these kind of very constrained sites, right, very close to lots of other neighbours. So how you um, you don't have sort of negative impact on neighbours is very important, um, and you don't like um, affect their rights to light. Uh, so there are all these guidelines, like twenty-five degree rules, forty-five degree rules. I might add that although there are all these sort of restrictions, as a young practice, for us it also offers an opportunity to create something different. So unlike a sort of typical street where you might create a terraced house, we really have to come up with unusual solutions and that sort of brings us back to the geometry, which for us is a tool and we've really been able to get a lot of um, attention through these unusual um, proposals, which which inevitably came out of these these sort of weird, weirdly shaped sites. And uh, on another sort of topic leading on to that, uh, from that, uh, what's interesting is that originally it was individuals and private 
um, developers developing these difficult infill sites. But there's such a shortage in housing that actually now local uh, government um, councils, we call them in Britain, are now looking at their own own land and looking at what what opportunities there are to design on their own own land. So the government land, own land, and actually you can build hundreds of thousands of new homes on on um, this land that previously had been seen as unviable. And there is currently a major housing crisis in London mm. and many other cities too, but um, so it's become a very topical issue. Yeah. In several boroughs um, in London, over 50% of all new housing is built on these small sites and often they are built by small developers at the moment. So there is a, you know, it's, it's become definitely a, a kind of trend um, in, in the city and it's a huge, it's a huge challenge to try to rework this. Another constraint within um, these strange sites, even though they're completely new typologies, um, in terms of materials, the planners mm. are quite, they often, they like brick, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a kind of non, not, you know, very non-controversial material. Um, so we do try and push, um, you know, the limits of that, like um, different techniques of brick, yeah. or working with brick, or trying to push different materials. But there's, there's also that as a constraint. So besides brick, which is maybe an extrinsic factor that you have not much control over, uh, a lot of your projects seem to aim at a distillation of a concept to its most simple form. And that's something that architecture students often struggle with in studio uh, throughout, throughout a semester, throughout their academic career of simplifying projects to the extreme. So I was hoping you could describe the process within your firm of how you achieve that. There's probably um, a starting point. We sort of identified opportunities and constraints of a site, and um, we always um, trying to we work sort of inside out and outside in at the same time. So we have um, programmatic organisations we're trying to reach um, within the sort of brief, and then we have the site constraints. It might be the shape of the site or um, the way the roof can work, and then so we're kind of working outside in. Um, it takes a lot of time. Really. The, the simplicity of the plans is um, obviously really um, an illusion in that um, in order to get these seemingly extremely simple forms to work, extremely simple um, concepts, there's a huge amount of trial and error to get to that point. And there'll often have been numerous options, different kinds of geometries that we've tried on the site, um, for instance, with, with Arts Yard, one of our projects, which is triangular site and it's subdivided into these kind of fractal triangles, um, we tried many different different options for that site. And even then, even though it seems to suggest that this fractal plan fits beautifully like this, wow, you know, there's a, there's a plan. In fact, it, it's, it was incredibly complicated to try to get all of the program to fit on the site and in that plan. And it involved a lot of like shifting very, very infinitesimal angles just to get enough space to walk past the bed or you know to some areas you have to slightly sort of snub off one of the triangles to get enough width um, and also in the section as well and with when you're dealing with diagonals in a site you know if the contractor is is um, a, a tenth of a degree off um, further down the site it could totally throw the whole thing out of whack so um, it's actually very, very precise. And I think it would be very difficult to design these sites without the aid of, of kind of digital um, uh, design tools and being able to translate those now onto the site. Right. 
Another example <coughs> is in Vaulted House, um, which um, whose main sort of geometry is the vault. Uh, the roof um, is a series of these vaulted skylights, and um, the vaults come together in these pure lines that are really crisp. So the detail is so important. And yet hidden behind this kind of floating lightweight, <coughs> apparently floating lightweight roof, are these huge steel beams. So it's it's very um, it's very much about sort of how all that detailing comes together and the precision of um, working with all the different consultants and making sure um, the alignments are correct. It's a labor of love. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So many of your projects have uh, courtyards that you know we see in plan. And uh, could you describe the importance of these courtyards and how they relate? Both to interior spaces, but also to the public domain, so the street, mm. or in certain cases when you're working with infill lots, I imagine that it's a challenge to to design these spaces. Yeah, I think um, often uh, on an infill site, you have uh, you're you're not allowed any windows in the perimeter walls because they would be overlooking somebody's garden or, or um, into their house, and so really all of the light has to come from above, and we tend to um, as a solution to that, we often put the public areas onto the upper floor, so the kind of living areas onto the upper floor and the bedrooms and bathrooms lower down. And then the courtyards are a way of bringing light down to these lower spaces. And um, But they also become, as you say, a kind of uh, common rooms or kind of shared rooms. From Nazi yard, the courtyard between the two houses is a really important social space that the two houses sort of pivot around. And it's used really like an outdoor room. It's, it has, there's sort of tables and chairs and um, barbecue and children and dogs play there from the two houses and it's this very very kind of communal space. And communal space is really the backbone of all our projects. Um, it's, it's what connects all the different private spaces and um, those private spaces themselves appear much bigger because they they kind of open out onto these shared rooms so it's kind of also worth making more sp the space feel larger and more open and more light so they're really really the backbone of the whole since you opened in 2009, your firm has stayed very small. Uh, can you describe the impact that that's had on your projects or on your design process? And do you have any intention of expanding or sort of growing as a firm? Yeah, I mean, I think growth is all relative. Um, for us, we're, we're sort of, we are growing yeah. slowly but steadily. I mean, 12 people. We're now 12 people. So we started as three. <laughs> um, and it's, I think we, we wouldn't want to sort of, um, sort of suddenly uh, expand too quickly. Um, we're aware of all the kind of systems and um, systems at play in, a, in an office, but we we definitely have, um, you know, we're sort of, our projects are getting larger and that requires larger teams. And at the moment we've got an amazing team. Um, so it's definitely like we want to grow that. Yeah, and I think actually the small scale projects that we've done is really, allowed us to develop the language um, and, and actually we all, all now are sort of very attuned to the way we think which as three directors is, is very important and a lot of these ideas can translate to large practices to larger projects and uh, it's really just getting getting larger you know being given large projects so we're just waiting for them to come our way really <laughs> um, I think that's the frustration there as a young practice. We started very young, we were 27 when we set up. Um, and it is always that feeling that you really can do bigger things, but it's just a sort of building this sort of reputation around the practice, which, which is definitely happening at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's happened so often where we 
um, we get very close, like shortlisted, come second in a competition to design something great, mm. like a library or something, and then we don't win because we haven't already built a library. So, <laughs> so it's a catch twenty two. We're still figuring out. Mm. And I think the projects are incrementally growing larger. Mm. And you know, we started off with one unit, with two units. Now we're doing kind of ten, twelve, um, twenty units, and um, and you, as you jump up in the scale, you do have to kind of revisit your design. Um, principles because um, it doesn't neatly translate. There are many things that pass from the smaller projects onto the larger ones, mm -hmm. and um, I think we're definitely ready for, for much bigger projects. Yeah. Well, that's very exciting. Um, so you started your firm in two thousand nine, as I mentioned, a time of global turmoil. Uh, today, in twenty seventeen, do you have mm -hmm. any advice for frightened graduates <laughs> who might be uh, venturing off into the world? We don't know what the future holds right now. <laughs> we were talking about moving to New Zealand. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it is it is very, um, very scary times. And uh, I would say, you know, exercise your democratic rights and protest and make your voices heard and keep being idealistic um, because, you know, in the next few years, you'll be the people who are making these kinds of decisions and um, it's really important that you, you don't lose sight of, of the idealism that you have as a student. I think. Well, terrific. That's very well said. Well, thanks again for taking the time to speak with us and I look forward to your lecture today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks very much. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.